you're new with us or with us for the first time, uh, we're, we at Summit Bible Church systematically preach God's Word uh, verse by verse, passage by passage. In God's providence, we started the book of Matthew last week, and so as we move through the Scriptures, we land today on the account of Jesus' birth. God is sovereign, and He works all these things out uh, for His glory and our good. So we'll be looking at verses 18 to 25 today. Now your Bible is split in half. You have two portions. The first portion is called the Old Testament. The second portion is called the New Testament. I wonder how familiar you are with your Old Testament. That's the part of the Bible that a lot of people don't know a lot about. Maybe you just heard the Sunday school stories about those characters in the Bible. Well, Matthew, the Gospel of Matthew, is the first book of the New Testament. And what Matthew desires to do for us is Matthew puts Jesus in the middle of the bulletin board. Puts Jesus in the middle. And he shows us with all these pins on the outside, these Old Testament prophecies, he draws lines from them to the person of Jesus Christ. He shows us how all these Old Testament prophecies are fulfilled in Jesus. He connects the dots for us. And so I just want to show that where we've been in the book of Matthew. I have Jesus in the middle here. First, we saw that he is called the Christ. He is the promised anointed one of the Old Testament. Secondly, we saw that Jesus is the son of David. That is, he is the king, the seed from King David of Israel, the promised one, the true king of Israel. Thirdly, we saw that Jesus is the son of Abraham. That is, he is the seed that would come from Abraham to save Israel, and not only Israel, but he would save the nations. Jesus is that promised one. Fourthly, we're going to see today that it was promised in the Old Testament that Jesus would be born of a virgin. He comes not from the seed of men, but comes from the seed of God. See, now Matthew, in his gospel, transitions from his human origins to now his divine origins. God became a man. He was born of a virgin from the Holy Spirit. Matthew highlights the virgin birth of Jesus Christ. And that's what we're going to look at this morning. Verses 18 to 25. Now, I want to point something out at the very beginning of verse 18 that we saw last week in verse 1. You see that word birth. Now, the birth of Jesus Christ. You know what that word is in the Greek? It's Genesis. Do you remember last week how we saw... In verse 1, the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ. That word for genealogy is Genesis. So Matthew, in chapter 1, he's continuing the origin story. Genesis, the origin, the beginning. He started with his human origin, and now he transitions to his divine origin. His divine origin. Jesus is not only from this line of promised people, Jesus is from God, a seed planted in the virgin. 
the Virgin Mary. This is how God became a man. We see the human line and the divine line collide in the virgin birth of Jesus Christ. And it is significant. It is important. It's one of the essential tenets of our faith as Christians. You have a statement, a paragraph, really, on your bulletin that is dense. It is theologically dense. That's why I wrote it down for you, because I just want to show you the significance of what happens in the virgin birth of Jesus. Here, I'll read it for you. God emptied himself of the external manifestation of his deity, taking on human flesh. That's what we call the kenosis. Uniting his divine nature with human nature, that is the hypostatic union. With Joseph as his legal father, through the human line of promise, while avoiding the curse of sin passed down from his human fathers, Jesus was born of a virgin. From the Holy Spirit. Now I realize that's a mouthful. Kids, if you memorize that and come back to me next week, I'll give you a treat. That's a promise. Kids, I I should clarify, 12 and under, okay? You teenagers, too easy, too easy. But 12 and under, if you memorize that little paragraph, I'll give you a treat next week. It is dense, dense, but that is the significance of the virgin birth. This is how God became a man. And it is important. God became a man fulfilling both His purpose and His promise. Now I wonder if this Christmas season, if you're celebrating the same Christmas story, maybe you don't have that memorized, you don't know all the theological significance of the virgin birth, but are you at least in awe of it? Do you at least see the importance, the miraculous, the supernatural virgin birth of Jesus Christ as significant? Not just what your cute nativity scene shows you. It's not just about, you know, cows and and sheep bowing at the manger of Jesus. Probably not a silent night, by the way. He was a man, born a baby, and all you know when the babies come out, if they're not crying, that's a bad thing. Jesus was born to people, born a man, and that is significant. I wonder if your Christmas is Christ-centered or if it's man-centered. I wonder if your Christmas, the purpose of it is salvation and eternity, or if the purpose is consumerism and temporary. One purpose promises and fulfills, and the other, well, it promises, but it doesn't deliver. Which is your Christmas? Which is your Christmas? Is is it the miraculous virgin birth of Jesus Christ? Is that the reason for your season? And do you understand why it's important? Well, Matthew is going to show us that today in this passage. So let's move along here. Let me summarize the story for you. We read it already. Now here's the summary. Mary is pregnant. Mary, or sorry, Matthew clarifies that this was when she was betrothed to Joseph and she had not yet, or they had not yet consummated in marriage. Now, what does betrothal mean? Betrothal is just a more formal engagement. It was more formal, it was binding with contract and it had dowry paid. And so they had committed to marry, but there had not yet been 
the marriage ceremony. And so they were to remain strictly abstinent until after the marriage ceremony. So Joseph finds out that Mary is pregnant and being an upright man knows it wasn't him. There's no way that they could have been pregnant together. So maybe his assumption is that Mary had been impregnated by another man. So he's an upright man. He seeks to divorce her. But he tries to do it quietly so that he would not put her to public shame, at least for a time, that she would not receive the shame that would come with obviously the implications of that. As he's considering these things, an angel of the Lord intervenes in a dream and says, do not leave Mary. The baby in her is from God, not from you or another. You'll call his name Jesus. He will save his people from their sins. This is exactly as the Lord prophesied in Isaiah 7.14. And that prophecy is quoted. And so after that dream, Joseph does exactly what the angel tells him to do. He stays with Mary and he takes Mary as his wife. But again, Matthew emphasizes they did not consummate the marriage until after the birth of Jesus. Now... Why is Matthew emphasizing the virginity of Mary? Why is Matthew making this the highlight of his story? Again, why, why do we not see this beautiful, quaint nativity scene? Why are we not seeing the shepherds come up or the wise men come up with their gifts? Why does Matthew talk about, first, the virgin birth of Jesus? Because it's significant. It's important. It's important for several reasons, two specifically. And we see two reasons in the text, and this will make up your outline. First, purpose, and the second, prophecy. Why was Jesus born of a virgin? Look at verse 21. To save His people from their sins. Purpose. Second reason, prophecy. Why was Jesus born of a virgin? Look at verse 22, to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. There's great purpose in why Jesus was born of a virgin and and it fulfills prophecy of old. It is significant. So let's look at these two points here. Let's start with first, purpose. Why was Jesus born of a virgin? Purpose, to save people from their sins. Now there's great significance And the meaning of a name. I wonder if you know what your name means. What does your name mean? Do you know its origins? Your first name? Maybe you do. Maybe you've Googled it. Well, I Googled it last week because I wanted to know the meaning of my name. And I found out that that the name Morgan is of Welsh origin. And it means dweller by the sea. Dweller by the sea. And so I've committed that I am never going to live more than two hours from the ocean. I'm fulfilling my ministry that way, fulfilling my calling. So I know part of my ministry is always, it's going to be in Southern California, all right? I'm stuck in this beautiful, beautiful state with great weather. Okay. But Jesus, what does his name mean? The text actually tells us, but I want to show you the origin. Jesus is the Greek form of the Old Testament name Yeshua, or we translate it as Joshua. 
Now, Yeshua is the oldest Hebrew name containing the divine name, Yahweh. So Jesus, his name means Yahweh is salvation. Yahweh is salvation. It's interesting to note that the name Jesus was common in the early first century. In fact, we see another Jesus in Acts 13, Colossians chapter 4. There's even indication that Barabbas, you remember the thief that was chosen before Christ, that his first name was actually Jesus. Interesting. There were other Jesuses around the Lord Jesus, but we know that it is only Jesus of Nazareth, the one from Mary and Joseph, who fulfilled the meaning of his name, the significance. Jesus is the Yahweh, the Savior. Look back at 21. Name him Jesus. Why? For he will save his people from their sins. This Jesus will fulfill the meaning of his name. He is the Savior. Talk about living up to your name. Jesus does so. Now, how did Jesus accomplish this mission? Why did he come to save people from their sins? Well, the obvious underlying answer is that we cannot save ourselves. We are not sinless. We have all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. We've all broken God's law. Not just breaking a list of rules, though. We've offended him personally. Our sin is not just breaking rules, but breaking his heart. We've personally offended God in our lying, in our anger, in our hatred, in our lustful thoughts, in our greed, in our thievery. We've all sinned. So we need a Savior. We need a Savior outside of ourselves. And that's where Jesus steps in. How did Jesus accomplish this mission and save us from our sins? 2 Corinthians 5.21 tells us exactly how. For our sake, He made Him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in Him we might become the righteousness of God. For our sake, He made Him, Jesus, to be sin who knew no sin. He was sinless. So that in Jesus we might become the righteousness of God. Here is the great exchange of the Gospel. Listen, this is important. Jesus became a perfect sacrifice. He took our place. Dying on the cross, He didn't just suffer, uh, suffer physically, He suffered spiritually for the sins of all who would believe in Him. He took that sin upon Himself, but guess what? In a great exchange, He gave us His sinlessness, His perfection, His righteousness. Now, what does that have to do with the virgin birth? Let's back up a little bit. Why, why is the virgin birth significant then? Here's the theological significance of the virgin birth. This is the only way holy God could become a holy man, sinless. Being born of a virgin, He was born outside of the curse of sin that was passed down from His fathers. Luke's Gospel, this is another take, another angle on the same story, he gives us Mary's encounter with the angel Gabriel. And he tells her, Behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. He will be great 
He'll be called the Son of the Most High, and the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David. He will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there will be no end. But Mary can't get over something. She's like, oh yeah, yeah, that sounds all great, the reign of Jesus and all, but wait a minute, angel, tell me this. How can I give birth when I'm still a virgin? (laughs) How is that going to happen? I know how biology works. How will I conceive a son when I am still a virgin, unmarried? And the angel answers, answers her and says this, The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child to be born will be called what? Holy. That is set apart. Separate from sin. Separate from the curse. The child will be called holy because he was born of a virgin, the Son of God. The child will not come from the cursed seed of men. He will come from the holy seed of God. Matthew emphasizes this in his passage. He says twice, the conception was from the Holy Spirit, verse 18. The conception was from the Holy Spirit, verse 20. This is divine seed. This is not men's seed. Jesus is removed from the cursed seed of men. Romans chapter 5 talks about how the entire human race is infected with sin. Why? Because of Adam our head. Adam sinned. Therefore all men have sinned. Sin has been passed down from generations to generations. And curse along with it. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Therefore all die as a consequence and are condemned before God. But understand this. Jesus broke the line. He broke the line. God being given to a woman conceived from the Holy Spirit was not born of the seed of men. And that's significant. That's important. If you go back actually in Jesus' genealogy, there's a name in there that would bring up an interesting debate for Jews who are paying attention to this stuff. The name is Jeconiah. Jeconiah was a sinful king. He sinned in the eyes of the Lord. And as a consequence, God told Jeconiah, from your seed, the Messiah will not come. Well, wait a minute though. Jeconiah is in the lineage of Jesus. So did God, was that prophecy wrong? No. Why? Because the biological seed of Jeconiah was not given to Jesus. Jesus was born of a virgin. The seed did not come from Jeconiah. Jeconiah is in the legal line of Christ, but he is not, because otherwise Jesus would have been accursed with the curse of Jeconiah. But he's removed of that because he was born of a virgin. The prophecy is fulfilled in Jesus. Jesus can now be another head Adam, our sinful head, now Jesus, the righteous head, from whom we receive righteousness if we believe in Him. He's removed from sin. Romans 5 talks about this. Romans 5.18, Therefore, as one trespass led to the condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all men. 
By one man's disobedience, the many were made sinners. So by the one man's obedience, the many will be made righteous. How is the virgin birth related to my salvation? How does it fulfill Jesus' purpose? Well, sinless Jesus, holy God, removed from sin's curse, lives a perfect life. He makes a perfect sacrifice. He raises from the dead, perfectly accomplishing God's salvation, conquering sin and death. And now sits at the right hand of God, perfect King of kings, perfect, holy. This is the only way holy God could become a man and grant us forgiveness, grant us justification in life. 1 John 3, 5 says, you know that He appeared in order to take away sins. And in Him there is no sin. In order for Jesus to take away your sins, He had to be sinless. Sinless, and he was. The birth of Jesus had to take place this way in order for him to fulfill his mission, to save us from our sins. And he did exactly that. He was without sin, out from under the curse that we all have. And so he was born of a virgin woman from the Holy Spirit. Holy God and holy man. The second reason we see in this text is to fulfill prophecy. Jesus fulfills prophecy by being born of a virgin. Look down at verse 22. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. Have you ever made promises you knew that you couldn't keep? Have you broke a promise to anyone, to your children, to a spouse, to a close friend? I think all of us have. We've all failed our own word. We've all failed to fulfill promises perfectly. God knows nothing of that. When God says something, or promises something, he sees it through. God does not lie or change. Numbers 23.19 says that. God is not a man that he should lie. What he has said, will he not fulfill? And he does. And so understand the significance of this. The prophecy that Matthew is referring to is in Isaiah chapter 7. Isaiah 7.14 to be specific. You've got to understand, when this prophecy was written by the prophet Isaiah, it was around the year 735 B.C. That is, 735 years before Jesus was born. That's when this prophecy was made, in the days of King Ahaz, king of Judah. Let's just give you some perspective. 735 years ago, the year was 1235, so sorry, 1285 A.D. This country we live in didn't exist. It was undiscovered at that point. Our descendants, or, or we're descendants of someone else or somewhere else. And so just to give you some perspective, it would be like King Alexander III of Scotland receiving a word from the Lord 
that his great, 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 great descendant would be elected president of the United States in the year 2020. That's how significant and crazy this is. 735 years before Jesus was born. And the prophecy is fulfilled to the T. God doesn't miss the crosses on his T's or the dots on his I's. He fulfills prophecy perfectly and literally. And so Jesus is... Jesus was born of a virgin just as God had promised. But you have to understand something. The prophecy goes back even further than that. It goes all the way back to the beginning. Genesis chapter 3, verse 15. Do you remember what happened at the very beginning? God created the heavens and the earth. It was all good. Yet men sinned. Adam and Eve. Eve, tempted by Satan, ate of the forbidden fruit. And Adam followed suit. And so as a result of sin, well, there are consequences. And we know that. There are consequences to sin. And so as part of the consequences, though, God makes a very specific promise in Genesis 3.15. And I actually want to read verse 14 because it starts with the curse for the serpent. Who was who? Satan. Genesis 3.14, he says to Satan the serpent, because you've done this, cursed are you above all the livestock, above all the beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go, and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. And now God makes a promise. I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your offspring and the woman's offspring. That word offspring is the word seed. God says, I'm going to put enmity between the seed of Satan and the seed of the woman. Well, most of us here have taken biology, haven't we? Human anatomy. Who does the seed come from? The woman or the man? The man. So it's interesting that God makes a point to say the seed of the woman will have enmity between the the seed of the woman and the seed of the woman. Of Satan, and then look at what he promises. He, the seed of the woman, shall crush your head, and you, serpent Satan, will bruise his heel. In this ancient Old Testament text, there's a promise that the seed of the woman would conquer Satan. And now, On this side of the virgin birth of Christ, we see how that mission is going to be fulfilled. Jesus is the seed of the woman. And the woman that was placed there by the Holy Spirit, not from men, but from God. This is divine seed. This is the Messiah. This is Jesus the Christ who was promised from the very beginning and will bring all things to an end. When He comes back to make all wrongs right and to reign here on the earth. This is a strong illusion pointing forward to the future virgin birth of Jesus. God makes a promise and He keeps it. He keeps it. If you follow this word seed through the Old Testament, you see a line that ends in Christ. First you have the seed of the woman, Genesis 3.15. And then you have the seed of Abraham who would bless Israel and all the nations, Genesis 12. Then you have the seed of David who would reign and rule over an everlasting kingdom, 2 Samuel 7. Matthew says the seed has arrived. Jesus came. 
He was born. He was here. He manifests himself to us. The one who was promised from the beginning and the one who will bring all things to an end. This is Jesus. This is the little baby in your nativity set. Born of a virgin, exactly as God had promised. Listen, the book you hold in your hands, the Bible, even the two sections, Old Testament and New Testament, it's not a collection of random stories that don't make a ton of sense or that don't relate to each other. It's a collection of stories and characters that string together and point to one person who is God. One being. And the stories lean forward to the manifestation of His Son, Jesus the Christ. He came first to save His people from their sins and He will come again to conquer and reign as was promised. He keeps His word. God fulfills His promise. The divine line collides with humanity in Jesus who, be, who is God becoming a man, who became a man. I want to close our time with this word Emmanuel. You see Matthew emphasizes, adds, adds some commentary in the text. He says this word Emmanuel means God with us. God with us. Well, Jesus is the manifestation of that very truth. God who became a man and dwelt among us. And I just want to point to this reality. God did not create mankind to leave it alone. Or to not have relationship with it. It's not the false religion of deism. Which basically says, you know, God created this earth and He made it all good. And then sin messed it all up. And in order for these sinful men to figure out who God is, well, they've got to figure it out themselves. They've got to trust in their logic, their, their rationalism, and their science to find God. God just left it alone. That's not the case. God has been revealing Himself to mankind from Old Testament and then a massive revelation in the New Testament in that God actually came to the earth and dwelt among us. God became a man. He does not leave us alone to fend for ourselves. God reveals Himself to us. You want to know who God is? What He's like? Look at the person of Jesus. Look at His character. Watch Him speak. Listen to Him. Follow Him with your life. This is God. This is who He is. And that should bring us great comfort. Great security. Because there's great comfort in company, isn't there? You know, my kids, they won't go upstairs into the dark rooms without me. But if dad's with them, then they have some confidence. They'll go in. You know, I'm not going to hike Mount Baldy alone. I didn't do it alone. I wouldn't do a hike like that without a, an experienced guide, my brother-in-law, who's done it a hundred times before. There's comfort. There's security and company knowing that you're with somebody who has some control. Well, who has ultimate control over the universe? Not God himself. And so God becoming a man should bring us great comfort and security knowing He fulfilled His promise and He's going to fulfill the one coming. He's going to come back to take us home. God was born a man. He took on flesh and lived and dwelled among men for 33 years. He is Emmanuel, God with us. John 1.14 says, the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen His glory. Glory is of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. 
1 John 1, 1, that which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we've seen with our own eyes, which we've looked upon and we've touched with our hands concerning the word of life, the word Jesus Christ. The life was made manifest. We've seen it, testified to it, and proclaimed to you the eternal life which was with the Father and was made manifest to us. Jesus came. He showed up. Jesus didn't stand you up. Have you been stood up? You've been invited to something, maybe not by a significant other, but by a friend. You're invited to something, they said, I'll meet you here, and they never show up. Maybe we've all been a victim of that. Maybe we've done that to someone else. That's not God. He doesn't stand us up. He shows up. And He showed up in the person of Jesus Christ. He dwelt among us. He shows us who He is. He desires relationship with us. And this points forward to another promise. The final promise of His return. In the new heavens and the new earth where we will dwell with God forever. The fact that Jesus fulfills God's first promise and actually showed up should give us great reassurance to look forward to the next. His return when He comes back to make all wrongs right and to make a new heaven and a new earth. I want to plant this this verse in your brain so that you'd meditate on it and think about it, even at Christmas. We saw Jesus came first to forgive people of their sins, and He will come again. Revelation chapter 21, verses 1 to 4. Here is something to look forward to, a promise that God is sure to keep, something that will happen. Revelation 21, 1 through 4. And I want to just tell you, the glory of heaven is not the gold streets. It's not the fact that, you know, we're going to be sinless and superhuman and, uh, you know, be able to eat whatever we want and not get fat and, you know, be able to uh, run as long as we want and not get tired. That's not the glory of heaven. The glory of heaven is that God dwells among us. Look at Revelation 21.1. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, what? The dwelling place of God is with men. He will dwell with them, and they will be His people. And God Himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore. For the former things have passed away. He who is seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. I wonder if some of you here today are sitting at the table waiting for somebody to come give you some company. You're sitting at the table waiting for the world and all its features and for somebody or something to make you happy, to give you true assurance, to 
give you comfort in this crazy, chaotic world, to give you true joy because nothing seems to be lasting. It's all temporary. And you're waiting, sitting there at the table, waiting for the world to fulfill that, that meaning, fulfill that void in your life. Jesus is right here. Jesus, the Messiah, came, dwelt among us. And he actually said when he came, he said, you know, I'm going to go again, but I'm going to send my Holy Spirit who will dwell in you and reassure you of your relationship with me. And then I'm going to come back. I'm going to come back to gather my people together to myself. Jesus stands right in front of you, the perfect relationship. The one who will not stand you up. The one who will make promises and fulfill them. Will you trust in Christ today? If you haven't already. Don't just look at the manger and say, oh, what a cute baby. Look at the manger and the nativity scene. Realize that God became a man to fulfill a purpose and to keep His promise. And He did. Jesus lived the perfect life that you and I couldn't live. He died on the cross. Taking our punishment and giving us His sinlessness, and He rose again from the dead, the conquering King who is seated at the right hand of the Father and is coming back to claim the Davidic throne. God keeps His promises. Will you trust in Him? Will you quit trusting the promises of the world, the fake fulfillment, the temporary pleasures? Would you trust in Jesus if you haven't already? And Christian... Just realize the importance and significance of the virgin birth and as it relates to your salvation. Sinless Jesus, God became a man just as He promised He would in the way that He promised He would. And would you worship Him as the real reason for the season and not some other phony character? Trust God, Jesus Christ, today. Let me pray. Heavenly Father, thank You so much for Your Word that is so clear Your word that is sure, we can hang on your promises, trusting them completely because we know that you will fulfill them. We know that you'll keep your promises, Lord. And as we look out into a world that is so fake and phony and fraudulent, we're looking for somebody to make a promise and keep it. I pray that we would look to Jesus Christ. It's the ultimate promise that we would trust Him with our life and look forward to the future when He will come back and take us home. Pray that You grant somebody new faith today. A new faith, a new security, a new trust in Jesus. And that for all of us who do believe in Him, I pray that You would warm our hearts with worship for who Jesus really is. In Jesus' name, Amen.